0: Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, CTO of Portal Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to Beyond Bitcoin. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and along with me today is my friend and colleague, Nitin Gowers. Hello, Nitin.
1: Uh, Hey, Derek. uh, Glad to be here. I believe you're back, and I'm back on the road, so it's back to the same (laughs) equation of you staying at home and me being on, on the road again.
0: That's right. And for viewers that expect this regularly on a Thursday morning, we're very sorry. It's a day late because of travel challenges. I've been to um, Zurich and Geneva and London, which has been most fascinating because of course it's the world of financial management and fund management. Um, and I'm back now in the land of Oz and um, and you're back on the road in Boston, I think.
1: I'm in Boston, you know,
0: attending to some of the work that I have here as well. So look, Today, because I've been in this traditional world of of fund management, I wanted to sort of raise this, you know, what's happening in the market at the moment and how dissimilar in many ways the markets are between the world of cryptocurrencies and crypto exchanges and the traditional exchanges. So some of this is going to be just factual statements. Others are going to be observations. But, you know, one interesting thing is, that the crypto world operates 24/7 all around the year, and it operates in every country non-stop, whereas the traditional markets, such as the market in Australia, starts at a very gentlemanly hour of 10 o'clock on the eastern seaboard and finishes at four o'clock in the afternoon. So it's actually doing six hours a day trading. Um, so in their case, they've got 18 hours a day to rest have dinner, talk to their friends, (laughs) you know what I mean, and and decouple from what's happening in the marketplace. I'm not sure. This is really important because human beings are human beings. And if you're operating them 24-7, there's no time for them to sort of settle down and rethink what's happening. So firstly, this market operates 24-7 and it's intense. Secondly, traditional markets have a very large inflow of money every single every single week, every single month. And that's from the big superannuation companies and and the large institutions that are forced to buy. They're forced buyers. They have no right not to buy. So they must buy into a marketplace no matter what. No such buyer exists in the crypto market. So billions of dollars aren't forcibly invested into it um, every single week, every single month. The other thing is that You know, interesting enough with the downturn at the moment, I was listening um, to the Australian Broadcasting Commission, and one after another, the big superannuation companies are coming on to give advice to superannuation holders. Well, what they're telling them is, hold on, hold on, the market's gone down, the market goes down before, it'll rise again, everything's fine, this is the typical nature of markets. Well, of course, they're correct. But which large institution comes on and says that about the crypto marketplace, Nitton? None. In fact, not that's only fine. none, but they're the opposite because a lot of them will come on because they're threatened by the marketplace and they'll turn around and essentially say, I told you so. So you've got a market that also doesn't have any governmental intervention. And of course, many purists will say, well, that's a wonderful thing. But you know, if NASDAQ dropped 25% in a day, there'd be a trading halt, wouldn't there? And that would mean that people would have to go away and think about it and wonder whether they're getting too overheated about this, et cetera, et cetera. No trading halts exist in this space. So by the time you've got 24-7, no trading halts, no interventions, and the industry not talking it up, you can see why this market is so volatile in just these natural reactions of how human beings work. But there's other reasons it's volatile too. And I think that's what you wanted to talk about today, which really... I think it's about infrastructure and guidelines and and the things That's that fine. this market probably needs to become mature from so yeah interested to in hear your thoughts on that
1: yeah yeah no actually you know I usually when I write and I talk about Derek uh, I stick to my roots I take to technology I look into business models looked into what the financial industry and what the other adjacent industry should be doing but this last weekend I spent some time in, and I've been researching this for quite some time especially since the Terra Fiasco happened, and now yes. we have three, and now you have the ripple effect. I wouldn't call yes. it; I wouldn't use the term contagion, but I would say it's a ripple effect because now you have dependency on these sort of you know liquidity that is coming from, which again we've discussed this many times. But
0: so I really want to focus. From, um, that's from coming the from Terra Luna Celsius, and and now Three Arrows Exchange.
1: Three Arrow Exchange, and I think some of the elements again stems from it's undeniable that global macro has a role to play in it. But it's also something that I think that the our industry, the, the crypto industry, lacks the market structure, lacks the discipline, lacks the data. And I'll, I'll yes. spend some more time in talking about the four prescriptive approaches that I have sort of devised in terms of what the industry should be doing. But in generally, I think that the crypto industry needs what we call a crypto capital market structure and convincing innovation narrative, which means we have to do a reset on learning from failures and building upon successes. We've had success stories. We've had, we've built wealth out of this industry and we've done, we've proven in in, in many cases, whether you look at DeFi, look at NFTs, the art of the possible. And this has all been a huge experiment. And I think it's time that we reevaluate this from the existing failures and undo that mistake and build a market structure that can be globally trusted. And of course, there are some challenges, hence the term disruption blockchain and digital assets as technology uh, frameworks is meant to disrupt existing in- industries. So uh, you know past few weeks have been interesting, Derek, which have sort of surfaced in what in the financial industry uh, we call as MRA or something called matters that require attention. So yeah. MRA in financial service industry describes a practice that deviates from sound governance, internal controls, risk management principles. And and there's a mechanism in place to say, you you have to go and fix it. And that's essentially the cost structure of of the financial service industry. And with growing number of naysayers that we have seen have been vocal due to the recent events laden with mismanagement, ill-defined and misgoverned systems. Exactly Mm. what we have seen with Terra was, again, bad tokenomics, right? Bad governance mechanisms. You Mm. can't blame the technology for that. And in general, misrepresentation of the industry. I wanted to actually have a systemic view of the industry. And and that led to this point where I wanna dissect the failings and be prescriptive on learnings from that failure and build upon the successes, as I mentioned earlier. So I think few things which I think we should discuss here is one is, in my opinion, drawing parallels to what would this be if this would happen in, in the existing financial market structure, which I think has lost significant value, except that the market is big. It's $470 plus trillion dollars compared to $3 trillion. So the uh, the the bear market, as we call it, has a much significant impact on crypto than it has on traditional markets. But I think we should look in that. We should look into what is the, the current financial market structure that has shock absorbers that had guardrails built into it yes. uh, to prevent something like this. I mean, yes, there's always a risk. There's risk in every single market. there's, there's uh, you know, there's market risk, there's you know, economic risk, there's governance risk how does the industry cope itself in managing those risks, which is a big part of, this, of, of what we're doing. Second thing is we should evaluate the current state of market unstructure. And I'm using the word unstructure in crypto, where the promise of Bitcoin started out with those guardrails. I mean, essentially the genesis of this industry. So we should look into what is that structure today? Have we, have we simply created a digital analog uh, I, I know it's an oxymoronic term, digital analog yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um,
1: of of the existing market structure. Or yes. are we sort of have we lost that uh, that thesis and that that promise that 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 block that that Bitcoin and, and subsequently blockchain promise? And then we should look into some of the prescriptive approaches that I think that we should rethink and learn from these mistakes. And instead of looking into failures, look into what can we do so when we turn or you know when when we turn the industry around, uh, it's much more uh stable it's much more resilient and actually it has it has a lot of um, you know stability built into it in terms of efficiency of the market which is the intent so i'll pause at that i think we need to we should dissect this a little bit
0: so Nitin, what's interesting now is that it's getting acknowledged as a fourth asset class and that's quite historic because it's I think it's a fifth know, asset class yeah it's well if you want to invite in you want to define cash and real estate Um, equities and bonds, then it's a fifth asset class, Um, but certainly it's a new asset class and it's the first new asset class since the 1600s. So it's pretty impressive that it is a new asset class. Um, What comes with that is the sort of the the, um, desperation of traditional methodologies of doing things to be overlaid into this space. And it's, it's where the challenge is going to be is to take the best and most relevant part of traditional finance and put it into this totally new methodology of, of reflecting assets and trading currencies and creating business models. And, and I think that's where um, we hear the term reg tech, regulation technology, on a regular basis. Never thought tech regulations would be defined as a technology. <laughs> but reg tech um, is, is encouraged into it. So... so what are your picks and choices to really make a difference to this industry that you think we should bring across from traditional industry um, yeah. that will provide the right sort of guidelines to give investors comfort and not just retail investors, which is very important for the mums and dads, yeah. but big institutional yeah. investors, which in many cases have retail investors in it.
1: Absolutely. So I think we should take a step back and look into understanding existing financial market structure, right? And, and we use the term market structure. It means who are the players, what they do, how does the entire system work? So if you look at the modern financial market structure, it's essentially a chain of interconnected market participants, which aid in one, accumulating capital, which is when you take the deposits and people make investments and you have investment managers and you have banks and form investment resources, which is you know when you form a fund um, and you form, which is attracting capital and you sort of create the basic building blocks. And then you have the market participants that have a specific function such as an asset custody. There are people who are third-party custodians uh, and I ha- happen to work for one of them uh, you know, in, 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 you know, in my day job. And looking into this from a perspective of the fact that you have a central bookkeeper, which is the, the central security repository, like the DCC for example, and you have liquidity provisioning people who provide liquidity to the market. You have clearing and settlement. And because e- either by function or by capital constraints or due to regulation, many of these entities are not vertically integrated. Thus preventing collusion, which is the entire ele- genesis of Bitcoin essentially, or take a unilateral investment decision, which means that not single entity, which is a risk with many of the vertically integrated crypto firms, like for example, Coinbase, uh, they perform all these functions unilaterally, which means they can it's easy for them to be able to change books and for short term on, until things catch up with them. So it's hard for any of these, because of lack of that vertical integration. And it prevents collusion and takes this, you know, a path where uh, you need to coordinate these different systems, which again, is the problem that we say that each of these entities are taking a fee because they need to staying in business. So various mm. products, while maybe governed by a different market and fundamentals of financial primitives, remain universal. There's a lender, there's a buyer, there's an interest uh, in terms of lending, there's a cost of lending that's called yield and, and you provide a return on that investment. There's a whole process and then someone has to post collateral somebody has to sort of ensure that you have enough liquidity to be able to pay for short term so that the clearing can happen within the governed stipulated time which today is t plus two which is within two days the settlement yeah. should happen in terms of actual payment of money and and many of these entities have to post collateral to be able to ensure that they're able to so there's these shock absorbers that are in the system again due to the past failures the existing market structure exists and it's still evolving, in my opinion, which means that SEC is recent ruling, has talked about T plus one, which means that you need to settle every every so, security settlement, which means when you buy and sell, has to be settled in a day. Well, to do that, you're suddenly increasing the velocity of, of movement of money. And suddenly now people have to keep additional collateral because they have to make sure that they have enough shock absorbing capability. And I think that has a plus that it alleviates risk. But the negative is that it's capital inefficient, which means the capital is simply locked and sitting there and it's not doing anything. So that is the existing market structure. And I think crypto aims to disrupt some of those things. And I'll take a pause here in a minute. And to me, I want to understand what are those things or those sort of components that can be done today, but at the same time, what is that capital market structure that we need to build, which not just mimics the shock absorbing and efficiency and, and stability of the existing system, but also uh, be able to provide a much more refined so the capital is more efficient. Uh, there's less fee structure and there's more transparency in the system, which is, is essentially why we got into this business. So I'll take a pause here Derek, to see if that made sense.
0: So you see T plus two or T plus one as um, a safety mechanism um, and inefficiencies at the same time. Um, so certainly from the world of of a blockchain, um, you know, a transaction that takes T plus one and goes onto a double entry bookkeeping system is sort of grossly inefficient in comparison <laughs> to something that happens instantaneously is laid down on an immutable blockchain, you know, um, far better system. But of course, what comes with that um, is you're saying is there's an inability to re- a de- rewind a transaction uh, or an inability to to negotiate a settlement or something. Um, there's kind of strengths and weaknesses in that, are they not? Because if you do yeah. operate in a, in a crypto world, um, you've either got your digital assets there um, or you can't do the transaction full stop. I um, agree. And, yeah. and,
1: and if you look at, like, for example, uh, let's look at the global financial crisis, right, 2008. Uh, and I think Bitcoin system was proposed as an experiment that was born out of global financial crisis as a prescriptive approach to rethink of financial system. So what happens in that financial system today is, of course, you have all these shock absorbers, which means that you have banks and you have people who have to post collaterals, you have intermediaries who have to make sure all, all, all the things are in place. And if all fails, then you have the central government that's the, the, you know, the central banks and the the governments which step in to provide liquidity. Well, there's no such mechanism in the crypto world. There is no big brother. There's no entity that provides liquidity. It still relies upon the particip- you know, participative economics that we talked about earlier on this, and and I think um, few things that Bitcoin brought to attention, one, this injection and intervention from these world bank, you know, world entities, whether it's mm. governments or central banks, was seen as something which, you know, which was, at least in, at the time, was causing problem as opposed to fixing it, right? Yes. That you're, you're not letting capitalism work, you're sort of, every time that something goes wrong, you step in and you provide more liquidity. And the mm-hmm. question then became that can we reimagine an order to organize a world community to reduce dependency on a few large economies with influential hegemonies, which is again the USD and the euro and so on and so forth. But that was the imagination mm-hmm. that, that, that Bitcoin introduced. And so I think there are two things every system, there's no such thing as a perfect system. So when I talk about envisioning a market structure with what we have learned from Terra, what we have learned from uh, Celsius, what we've learned, that there's risk in everything. And I think that one, the, the risk should be understood. And for us to understand that risk, we need data. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But in general, I think that as we build the structure, we, our, our design principles for the structure should be, of course, efficiency. Otherwise, what's the point in doing all of this stuff and expending talent, time, capital in building these new systems? Second thing is you know, looking into resiliency of the system. That system should be able to absorb something like Celsius and Terra with a blimp that it shouldn't be a, a huge taxation you know it, it shouldn't tax the system to the point it, ha- it has done today in addition to what has happened with you know with 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 crypto you know with uh, with global macro and crypto macro as we've discussed here Can so I'll stop you there for one few- second
0: and and that is that how much of the contagion of um you know preemptively Celsius, we don't know whether it's going to be a bad outcome or not, but it's not looking good. Um, But Terra Luna, which is clearly defined and Three Arrows, which is a self-managed or, you know, a major fund owned by a number of people, not a large number. But how much of that is direct contagion? In other words, that has impacted a value to the marketplace, which which is going to take out value? Um, Or how much of it is perception, just fear? All of a sudden, FUD is occurring because celsius comes oh. in because celsius is on hold at the moment there's no major change to what's happening with celsius but the panic has hit
1: correct actually there there is change you can't withdraw your funds that's a big change
0: yeah that is um, a change so you,
1: <laughs> that is a big change right? i think so i think if you if you i, I did some research this uh, this morning while i was going for my exercise in terms of looking into what's happened with the industry in general right so i think 68 to 70% value has been wiped of the entire industry. And that's been that, you know, that all the value that was created over time has been lost. And I think many of the, even the, so in Bitcoin as a, as a measure, we look into Bitcoin's day loss, which means how long has Bitcoin been in a, in a wallet is one of the metrics that has been looked into in terms of yes. the hodlers, the whales, and the confidence in that. And I think some of that actually, and the, and the primary reason for that is that many of the institutional investors and many of the sort of the whales as they call them, there's a need for liquidity for all of these guys because they've made commitments, they've made investments, they've made capital commitments based on that wealth effect they've had because of the higher valuation that we've seen in the past few months. And due to that, um, you know, one thing I think stablecoin is again is the is the primary bridge between the traditional you know finance and, and 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 decent class finance and crypto finance. And while that has dried up because of again global macro uh, tightening of liquidity. Um, we've seen this massive vacuum of liquidity and oftentimes people have looked into saying how bad is this quote-unquote contagion, though I would, I would still not use the term because I think we still have a long way to go in understanding the ramification in, in the industry. But at the same time, the question is for many of these institutional investors and institutions who have actually have bet their farm on it, um, they would like to, one, meet the short-term requirements, the liquidity requirements for their funds, and at the same time, they want to not have any more bleeding, which can cause the, Know, further sort of in loss of confidence from the investors. So there's, there's a little bit of combination of both mm. that is leading to this liquidation. Mm. I mean, and this liquidation is equivalent to, I, I would say a bank run. Uh, mm. And I think some of that is just a fear and you know uncertainty and, and doubt, the FUD factor that as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and some of it I think is just a normal business needs. People do need capital to deploy and people need capital to do their pay payroll and do working capital. All that is still a need. I don't think crypto negates that need per se, if that makes sense. Mm,
0: makes good sense. So Nitin, what is it that we should take from traditional? What sort of guidelines are you suggesting we should put into the industry?
1: Yeah, and I spent some time. I I don't think we need to have a complicated structure per se. I think I I have four prescriptive um, measures and I've put a lot of time and thought into it, Derek since you all were traveling Switzerland and having a great time in Europe, I, I had this uh, <laughs> work on your, on your behalf. And and so I think we should rethink stable coins. And I, I say that mm. because I think, and I, we've had this discussion, I can't get enough of, about stable coins. We've dissected them, we've looked into the economic factors. And I think that revisiting stable coin, to me is an important part because one, um, that we should look into eventually figuring out a mechanism that, for the industry to self-sustain, we need to have our own fungible asset. So right now, yeah. we're providing banking on-ramp, off-ramp, and liquidity moves from traditional finance, which is the USD and euro, into uh, crypto finance and digital as you know, uh, decent-class finance. And I think that that also inherits the challenges of global macro. So anything, anytime there's an event happening, like we've seen recently with quantitative tightening, for example, which is a tightening event, liquidity moves out as easily as it came in. And that actually has a dependency on it. So rethinking the stablecoin and looking into, can we then rely upon the layer one, which are sort of the backbone of the entire industry, like Bitcoin and Ether, as truly fungible and liquid assets? Can we rely upon these assets and build bridges, which allows us to be able to have complete dependency for things like payments and things like unit of account, things like medium of exchange, all the things that we look for in money. Um, and I think we should rethink stablecoins, both in terms of, uh, reducing dependency, but also as a vehicle, which the second prescriptive mechanism, as is decoupling. Uh, decoupling is is an interesting part where it's essential, in my opinion, for crypto industry to not only provide the diversity in investment landscape, but also a model for efficient and resilient asset class, uh, transaction systems, and, and an effective market structure. As you know, we have seen the stablecoin, which inherits this element, as I mentioned a few minutes back. Uh, Global macro it. Ing- Increases also correlation, which is what we have seen in this particular event. So decoupling crypto and rethinking stablecoin to me go hand in hand in terms of how we look into it. And 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 on playing on the words, I think coupling those two to decouple mm-hmm. us the, the crypto industry from from the traditional finance. I think it'll be good both in terms of providing a parallel standalone structure, but also providing the resiliency and what it needs to be able to have a, you know stand on its own merits. Second thing I think is really, really important part, which I think you will, you touched upon at the beginning of this, is robust crypto market data. Crypto never sleeps. It's 24-7. So you find a lot of information asymmetry that we have a lot of data, but we don't have a lot of insights. Mm. And, what, and what that means is that there's adequate data, but there's fragments of insights that's available, and only for the few who have the motivation, who have the resources, who have the compute power and the talent to be able to digest this information are, take, are able to take advantage of these things which i think is unfair and uh, you know i will touch upon efficient market hypothesis which again states we've discussed this on this show as well and if all the market participants have all the information all times uh, then the market reaches a state of equilibrium of demand and supply because suddenly now you know what something is worth what's the value and what's the price and price value equilibrium suggests that you know you are you know if everybody's acting on the same information Right now, crypto industry is going through a massive amount of information that I don't think is consumed by all the participants alike. So that is a third prescriptive approach. And the fourth thing I would suggest, which is such an essential part in what existing market structure has, is starting with crypto self-regulatory organization, or SROs, where the SRO by dominant industry players, like major one layer one protocols, like Ethereum, and Solana, and Cardano, Bitcoin Foundation, which actually has the power to create industry standards, professional conduct guidelines, and regulation to steer the industry in the right direction. Uh, And I think that's something like what many of the, like FINMA and FISMA, these are also SROs, uh, the enforcement and violation can come through a broader education and appeal to the community that supports a project to say, hey, uh, community don't vote on this project because it's violating these governance principles. So instead of going after purely enforcement actions, I think they have an avenue to influence the community that's the heart and soul of our industry to be able to influence their vote in a certain proposal that may be uh, either counter to the transparency and governance mechanism. So I think these four elements to me would be a good starting point to undo some of the damage that projects like Terra and Celsius uh, have done to our industry. And again, I'm not, there's no crack at these. These are all experiments in my opinion. Some of them have good intentions, but things didn't go well but I think mm. we should learn from that. I'll take a pause at that direct to see if, if that makes sense.
0: Well, well Nitin, um, you know, I've never considered you as a radical person, um, but- i, I think that's <laughs> <laughs> Because you aren't, you're well measured. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but your statement of number one is actually quite radical. The concept of actually pulling the stable coins away and not having them as a major part of the, the industry is radical because it's the only comfort zone that traditional industry has when it starts entering this industry, is that it's, it's, it's able to measure it in a measurable way that it's used to, and that is fiat currencies represented as a digital asset. Um, so I can see the logic of what you're saying there because um, the contagion to traditional industries um, is spread rapidly through stable coins. The interesting thing is that traditional industry wants to access this space through stable coins. So that's quite a radical move. Um, but, um, but, you know, well, well considered, because you're right, the contagions are very substantial. Um, the, the statement that there's a lot of data, but there's no insights is very true. Uh, you know, in traditional industries, when you've got the feeds of, of Morningstar and Bloomberg and, and uh, so many other microsystems, so many other um, major feeds of data that are available to everyone's fingertips. In this industry, um, you've got to be pretty savvy to be able to access the right data and have it in a meaningful way. I mean, by example, you know, we employ a data scientist, um, Petros, who is really an exceptional and outstanding. Yeah. He has to analyse this data constantly because so much of it's not readily available in, in some other mechanism, probably just because the youth of the space. Um, but the fourth part you raised, I I think is something that you can immediately relate to. And that is, um, you know, why would you bring on, again, you know, the 1934 SEC guidelines to transactions of equities and try and overlay that into this space? Why not create, uh, you know, the major community writers, sorry, the code writers that are community-driven to create that space? Because, you know, the law is the code in this area. And if you've actually got them writing the laws and building code in place that can enable the laws, um, you really are starting to create a, a, a judicial system which is totally different to a traditional judicial system but could work. Um, you know, I, I cite for a moment, you remember the Polychain um, attack, $320 yep. odd million. dollars. It was a fascinating attack because, you know, the minute the person... that Was it 600, 600 million, was it? Million. Oh, I'd to be yeah. half, half the done there. <laughs> Six, 600 million. And <laughs> one person did the attack. And immediately yeah. they knew the wallet address. And so yeah. immediately they tracked him. Um, the community knew within 90 seconds, not three months. A lot of white collar yeah. crime takes three months. It was 90 seconds. And then what happened, of course, is the community started gathering around and shutting down the opportunities he had or she had yeah. to transact that money. So in some ways, we saw the community engaged in resolving a problem. And and I understand that all, if not the vast majority of it, was returned within 10 days um, in in resolving a crime. So we actually saw the early stages of this unstructured way of community um, actually acting, didn't we?
1: Correct. Correct, but there's there's a difference, though. I think there's one is financial crimes. And I, 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 I draw the data buckets into two different buckets. One is financial crimes. All the things that you mentioned, where did the money go? Who stole it? Which wallet it is in? It? And if that's the wallet, can we track the movement of money from that wallet out, whether they're mixing and tumbling and go to other wallets? Can we blacklist all these different areas and so on and so forth? Yes. Uh, yes. Of course, there was a question, moral question, can we, can they do that for stable coin? Yes, stable coins were prevented from being redeemed because they were issued by a centralized entity. That to yes. me is a governance mechanism. That to me is a shock absorbing mechanism for financial crimes. But the thing is that how did we how did the community not know, like in case of Celsius, which is something which I've always debated? Um, same thing with Terra, that you're, if you're offering 20% yield, no such thing as the risk free yield, you're risking something. And I think it's important for them to disclose that risk to say, we're paying you 20%, but these are the risks that go with it. And if that risk is embedded into some long uh, you know, terms and conditions that people simply accept without reading, then that's unfair to the investors. The same thing with Celsius. Mm -hmm. If they were offering 12%, uh, they acted like a bank uh, in saying, you can deposit your money with us and we will. But they were making investment in very uh, risky assets, as we know now. The question Mm -hmm. that becomes is, do we have enough data to expose that? And of course, people did know that. I mean, some of the industry leaders did look into that and say, hey, we are staying away from this because they are going after some very risky assets uh, that may be highly leveraged. Whether it's staked ETH or whether it's going after some, you know, yield farming product that may have a ripple effect from the industry, I think these are risk factors that are not either neither explicitly disclosed, discussed, nor that information is readily available in data. Mm. Uh, data is there, but someone has to join the data and make sense of it. This is what I meant by insights. So I do delineate between financial crimes and market data as right. two sort of angles that they should look at. Financial crimes is, you know, post. Event, But many of the stuff should be disclosed to say, where is this token going? And if the industry prides itself of transparency, I think it has to make that information available.
0: So how can you get institutional validation? So by example, you know, when we um, bank here uh, in Australia, we bank with one of the big four or five banks. So you know them all, NAB and ANZ and Commonwealth yeah. Bank. We'll um, all of them, yeah. And so, so, you know, we know that those banks are uh, government guaranteed to a certain level per account, about $200,000 by memory. Um, we know that they operate and audited within certain sections. We know they're listed on the Australian Securities Exchange, so they provide constant um, disclosure to the marketplace. And we know they operate on a certain ratio of, of, of cash to loan assets, etc. They're yep. all defined and they're defined by the That's ASIC, right. the Australian Securities Investment Commission. Um, That's right. And, and so, therefore, these institutions have defined these banks as the creatures that they are so that when you know you're going to put your money in them, you actually know that this is the, the, um, the group that you are, you, this is the parameters and the credibility of the group you're doing business with. That doesn't happen right. in crypto. and, and it, it doesn't, yeah. Yeah, that's part of the challenge of not being able to have some institutionally endorsed product. But what your suggestion in your point four is that these guidelines get created by a community, they get published, they get achieved by the organisation that's putting themselves forward as the particular service, and that the community um, validates these and and measures them.
1: Correct. And for you know, for instance, uh, all the transactions happen in layer one at the end of the day. So whether it's layer one, layer two, whether it be and we discuss the various layers, whether it's you know, a project that's happening with, you know, an exchange, a decentralized exchange, any project that launches at the end of the day uses some layer one, whether it's Ethereum or whether it's Solana or Cardano, Avalanche. And I think that that community is very strong. And I think that uh, as a prerequisite, if the community were to suggest that, you know, every proposal, every investment that the community or that that project makes, and some of the projects can be centralized and should be centralized because that's the whole point of future of work that if i'm talented i should be able to come up with a project and which has amazing mechanics amazing economics and propose that to the community the community should be able to vote on it and i think that layer one entities should be able to say thou shall meet these 15 requirements and the community can then talk about the risk and everything else and vote on the project which i think is a fairly decent governance mechanism yeah which i don't think is followed today i think people launch a project people have this Sort of, uh, you know, the notion that it's, you know, the godlike uh, worship that happens to some of these founders. And I think we should be a bit more pragmatic in understanding the fundamentals of economics, of who is paying and who is earning, and what is the value being created, as opposed to, you know, just a notional value of how things grow
0: I think. So this is really interesting because we've often discussed the concept of layer one protocols being sovereign states. And what you're suggesting is they operate like sovereign states, to a degree, um, like sovereign states. So when they onboard a product, they have a responsibility to determine whether the algorithms are reasonable, robust, and could survive. Um, Otherwise, that there should be an adequate disclaimer, by example. Correct. I mean, as any
1: country who would like to be in, again, the good books of the national bodies who govern the banking and, and have the regulation, they don't want nefarious activities in the country. In fact, most countries don't want that. And so they define their own governance mechanism. They define anti-money laundering mechanisms to make sure that, you know, there's a system that's in place that prevents these nefarious activities. I think it's just similar to that, the layer one, if they choose to have the nation state status, they should have something similar as a sort of a SRO to say every project that's governed this has to go through this mechanism, which will also protect that layer one, but also have the reputation of layer one that it's it's safer to do business on that layer. Yes. Uh, and I think that's exactly the way it Right, that you're codifying these governance mechanisms, I think.
0: Yeah, that's really powerful, Nitin. Um, I'm not quite sure how you do with a, without stable coins. Um, maybe that's just my connection. The fact that um, I'm, I'm still grounded on the concept of stable coins <laughs> and the onboarding function of those. Um, but, but you know, the, very compelling to think that these major um, sovereign nations, these major blockchains then can become validated, not just on maybe the efficiencies of how they do business or the cost per transaction, um, but the strength of the community that's running them. Um, And I mean, you look around the world, that's what happens with sovereign nations. There are certain African countries that you look at and say, it's got too much sovereign risk, I won't do business there. But on the other hand, you look at Singapore and you go, exceptional country, No, very, very low sovereign risk, good place to do business. If you can get the same sort of thing happening with a set of regulations relating to um, each one of these um, layer one protocols, then people will um, aspire to reflect their product on certain layer one protocols. Really powerful, some right. good ideas there.
1: No, no, absolutely. I think we have a lot to go, a lot to do, and I think you know. Again, I'm publishing this hopefully next week, this weekend, in terms of my thinking. And again, I think there's something which as an industry, we should address whether we are, no no matter what capacity we're working in, whether you're looking at from periphery or you're actually a developer building an ecosystem, building protocols, uh, protocols and code is, if that's what's governing this, then I think each one of us has a responsibility towards it.
0: So as we get to the end of the program where we are, um, we really have to realize that this is constantly, this is like putty in our hands. Um, The community is able to build this Um, in ways that are totally novel and unique and the reason why of course at the end of the day is because it's a replacement of the double entry bookkeeping system in the form of a a providence validation layer one protocol and what gets built on top of that becomes our imagination human nature is getting involved with it again which is the creation of communities and the creation of Um, reasonable guidelines and safety protocols that you'd expect that humans will want to operate within. Um, But it is going to disrupt. And during that disruption period, I think we're going to see many protocols fail along the way or applications fail along the way. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, And you're going to see interfaces with traditional finance um, also be um, stretched, let's say. Um, And there's going to be doubters and believers, et cetera, et cetera that's what happens when a very radical new asset class suddenly appears in what is really 10 years flat, um, which is what happened with us. So I don't think we're going to run out of content for the next few um, hundred (laughs) episodes. There's much to come.
1: (laughs) That's true. And I think, you know, again, we have to just be at it and educate and, and, you know, be a part of that whole journey. And so no, I, I appreciate the conversation, Derek. I think we need to have more of this to be able to guide and educate our listeners as well as the industry, and take you know play our part in fixing it. And I'm not so worried about failures because let's face it, I think the existing financial system has own failures and you know massive failures in the past. And I think the system that is today is a product of learnings from that failure. So I think we should learn from it and make it better. That's it.
0: Yep, I totally agree. And by the way, for those that are listening to us, always feel free to write in, suggest comments, suggest you might like to be on the um, one of our events or one of our shows. Um, we'd be delighted to hear from you, and our contact details are always connected to the uh, the podcast at the beginning. Um, look forward to seeing you next week, and have a good one. You too. Bye, Derek. Good chatting. See you. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please feel free to connect with either Nitin or myself on nitin at portal.am or Derek at portal.am. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.
1: Bye for now.